The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to the Liberating Arts. Today, instead of having a conversation with just one person, I have invited three presidents of fairly new colleges. And in this time of pandemic and protest, the liberal arts, of course, are at least under siege, under question. And how are we going to continue them in different forms with new and innovative ways of promoting the flourishing of the liberal arts? I think that these three presidents are going to give us plenty of ideas. So let me introduce the three that have joined me and hopefully you'll get to hear a lot about their stories and their new ventures. Uh, we have with us John Mark Reynolds, who is the president of the Constantine College, St. Constantine College. And he was also the founder of the Tory Honors Program at Biola University and former provost at Houston Baptist University. We also have Matthew Smith, who is a scholar of Renaissance literature at Azusa Pacific University and the founding president of Hildegard College. And last but not least, we have Stephen Blackwood, who is the founding president of Ralston College, as well as the host of the Ralston College podcast and a Boethius scholar. So thank you guys for joining us today. I wanna start by hearing about your schools and uh, really getting a sense of the colleges themselves. So we'll kind of just maybe take some turns getting to hear about your college. I know that most of our listeners are great at Google, and so they'll be able to find the web page and get to see some of your vision statements. But if you could really give us the story about what gap did you see out there in the market that you felt like you've all been part of colleges, you've all founded things within colleges, you've worked within colleges, why start a new school and how does your college kind of fill that gap that you saw? So um, if we could start with John Mark, do you mind starting us off? No, I'm glad to do it. Uh, the idea here is so many colleges decided to become universities and added what we should be candid, our second, third tier grad programs as they grew into universities. What if we went the other way and a liberal arts college uh, merged with a K through 12 and so founded a K through 16 uh, and then grew that way? The advantage of that is a relatively small college like St. Constantine, we have ended up, we have 60 people that we can utilize who are full-time employees roughly uh, of the college uh, who can work inside the college and who are expected to be able to teach everyone from the nursery uh, all the way up through the college program because we divide into sessions as a great book style, uh, as so many of us are, micro college. Uh, we're able to offer some of the advantages of what would be a pretty big Christian liberal arts college, uh, as, especially as the K through 12 grows uh, with the advantages of a micro college. And we're able to do the one-on-one -on -one Oxford tutorials that I wanted to do uh, when I started the Tory Honors Program at Biola, first employee sitting with a yellow legal pad, but it just wasn't affordable. I, Biola was awesome. 
and Biola continues to be awesome running Tory and the wonderful job that Paul Spears has done there. But the economy, you know, just won't allow for the kind of one-on-one -on -one tutorials uh, that we can offer uh, as a result of integration with K through 12. So we're the weird thing. I think we're the only one of our kind that's K through 16. We're not a college that has a high school or a K through 12, uh, like a Hillsdale. We're fully integrated. So there'll be a session that, you know, my Arabic speaking Balamond graduate from Lebanon uh, person in the nursery will do with my college students. And that's true of every level of the school. Wow, that's so fantastic. I mean, as someone who works in the K through 12 sector as well, as in I, I work in college and in grad school, I'm always wanting that kind of lifelong learning vision. So it, it also breaks down the snobbery. There's some kind of weird thing where um, when I worked at a university as a chief academic officer, you were able to keep a Latin teacher for less money than maybe the school down the road that was a K through 12 because you had the prestige of being a college. Uh, and that's ridiculous. The ridiculous notion that teaching second graders is somehow less academically robust than teaching you know, college sophomores. So by bringing the two things together and having sheep, which is the other kind of college distinctive. Uh, we're able, I, only urban campus in the United States where college students can list Shepherd as like their career goal. I so, did not know that part. That's actually really new to me. It's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, sheep, it's cool. And we're very urban. I, I, we're in the most diverse city in the US. We have a very diverse student body uh, and sheep. Yeah, I did not know the sheep part. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I taught fourth grade. That was my first teaching job. And I always told people in college, I learned everything I needed to know about being a professor from teaching fourth grade. I mean, you're really, you're really. Yeah. In, you know? I'll walk out of a really robust Plato seminar and somebody will hit me in the head with a ball, like a kickball. And that's, that's great. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good mix. Um, yeah. Stephen, why don't you tell us the story of Ralston College? What, what gap were you hoping to fill? Well, I guess I'd approach that question in two different ways, both in the kind of macro and the micro. Just speaking very broadly, I, I, I've come to think that it's pretty clear that, that our civilization at large lacks its fundamental mechanisms of transmission. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you saw that the house you were living in had foundations that were about to collapse, you know, that's, you, you, you'd say, well, there's, there's, there's a kind of urgent existential necessity to do something about that. And that is certainly our, our view of, of the West at large or our civilization at large, let's say. I think it's true not only of the West, by the way. Um, and so on the one hand, we, we think there's, a, there's a, a, a vibrant necessity, but also an opportunity to play some role in, in building and rebuilding um, at the big level. And, and we certainly think that, that higher education, the humanities, the liberal arts, they, they are and always have been fundamental uh, as, a, as the source or stream, the source of, of, of our, of the, let's say, the, the, the human dimension of our lives or our, frankly, civilization is a human dimension. So it's, it's the fundamental, the, the foundations, the fundaments of, of the whole prospect of uh, human flourishing. That on the one hand, and then, and then you say, well, okay, that's kind of a big picture systemic uh, account. You know, how do you do that? And the truth is, I think the answer to that is, is 
is very small in a way, and that is that that there there is no such thing as in a way. Uh, uh, you know, your humanity, they're only human beings. And if you want to transmit uh, a, a culture or a civilization, there's really only one way to do that. And that is, is, is by lighting the, lighting the candles in the young. So they can then transmit those fires to the next generation. And, and so at the, at the micro level, uh, I think all of these things, whether we're talking about econo the economy or politics or arts or culture or any of our institutions, even family life, they, they aren't ends in themselves. I mean, they exist for the realization of the individuals that, uh, that they have the, the infinite privilege of, of, of having within them. And so at the micro level, the opportunity we see is that there are not just a few, but millions of people facing, uh, let's call it the meaning crisis or the alienation of modern life. And they're finding themselves without the, the, the most basic tools to confront those in the way that human beings need to, whether it's questions of mortality and suffering or, or truth and beauty or, or, or nobility. And, and so our, I guess the, the, what, what I would really say is I think the opportunity for, for all of us, and in fact, the urgent necessity at our time in our civilization is to bring those two things together. That is to feed the, the longings and the, the, the perennial uh, uh, desires for self-understanding and, and depth and truth in the human being that exists uh, intrinsically. And by that, to hope that the treasures of our own past and civilization, the ways that opens up the, uh, the horizon for human flourishing for others can be transmitted to the next generation. And in some small way or big way, whatever is in uh, an unknown future, we hope to participate in that. And so will Ralston College be doing more of the one-on-one um, -on -one type seminars that John Mark was talking about. You're going to have a lot more focus on the smaller, you know, relationship, the conversations that you're having. What What is your hope for what life would look like at Ralston College? It's a great question. We see uh, fundamentally ourselves have a double vocation, both on the one hand to be part of a, a reinvention and revival of the traditional academy, you know, in-person degrees um, uh, and uh, long, long form, so long long format forms of learning mm -hmm. um, on the one hand and on the other hand to be part of a, of a wider effort to democratize the humanities for anyone anywhere. Why should you have to be getting a degree or even enrolled in a degree program at a college to spend a weekend or a week in person or time online, uh, you know, encountering the fundamental questions. So we, uh, we see a lot of different possibilities there, but certainly in terms of the degree programs that we expect to offer, yes, uh, I think the, the university has got to be defined in its in-person activities by, by relatively small in-person exchanges, or there's no justification for them at all. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would seriously say that you're better off in an in-person class of 500 than you are in a Zoom class of 12 uh, after the experience of the last year all other things being equal. So yes, uh, lots of in-person, uh, in-class and out-of-class out uh, uh, conversation. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. So Matthew Smith, you want to add to the conversation. Tell us where Hildegard fits in this vision. Uh, Hildegard College, which I should, I should note, is not offering classes yet. We're launching fall mm -hmm. 2022. So we are currently uh, uh, soliciting applications from students and are excited about launching next year. And we started a few years ago 
uh, really when I caught wind of something happening in the country that I call the alternative college movement. And it isn't always new. Some of these are more than 100 years old. And it's especially prevalent, I think, among Christian colleges, but not exclusively Christian colleges. And so I took some time and uh, visited several of these schools um, or met online with their founders and presidents and got to know them, one of them being St. Constantine College by John Mark here, and learned a few things about them. I learned that they are graduating exceptionally competent, learned, literate, virtuous people, um, and they're doing so at a fraction of the price. A lot of these programs are cost less for the entire degree than one year at a conventional big university. Uh, another thing I learned is that they're small. The, the term micro college is kind of thrown around. A lot of them are fewer than 100 students on purpose because they think there's something important about that. A lot of them are, I think, have a, a renewed sense of mission, largely because of their size and the control they have over the curriculum. Uh, and then lastly, and this surprised me, many of them offer one degree if not one degree, a small handful of degrees. But I think that's closely related to the kind of economic responsibility that they can practice and the, um, the sort of debt-free policy many of them offer their students. So finding out about these schools, learning about how they started, uh, the thing that struck me most was their, people don't know about them. There's not, there's not much brand recognition for them. And I'm here in Southern California, and there are really no colleges like this in Southern California. My passion and the passion of the other founders of Hildegard College are for, is for the great books, great texts and art, intellectual history, as well as for the sciences and mathematics and a sort of concentration in entrepreneurial thought. Um, and nothing like that existed. And uh, what we discovered as we started to sort of build out the model was that we can do this, we can offer this one degree, and we could do it at honestly a fraction of the cost. We can make a 10 to one student to faculty ratio mm -hmm. available to almost any student who's willing to just, I don't know, work during the summer and save a bit and pay their tuition throughout the year. So that's the sort of cultural reason why we started. There are other reasons, more kind of ideal reasons about, um, our experience, the founder's experience with uh, the big university, big higher ed, as I call it, just sort of losing its soul, by which I mean not, not believing that uh, these schools often don't believe, uh, at least say they don't believe that there's any connection between the order of the education and an implied purpose to education. And we begin um, our discussions of Hildegard College with a belief in a purpose of education. And so therefore we try to seek and discover what, what the order or structure of it ought to be. Um, teaching at university level for about a decade now, I've, I've been surprised, but a bit dismayed by the fact that if you ask most, most professors at any big university, are you teaching the exact content that you want to teach in, um, in the way that you want to teach it? class size, mode of delivery, and within the broader curricular program that you think it best fits, the answer is almost univocally going to be no, no, no. And I think that you can do it. You can do it by following an alternative model, by kind of disrupting the way that higher education works. 
And now is the moment. I think that accrediting agencies are beginning to encourage innovation. The brand recognition is growing. There are more and more of these schools. Um, so we're we're sort of seeing that trend, seeing an opportunity for people in and around Southern California. Uh, and that's how Hildegard College was, was birthed. Yeah, so I, I'm incredibly biased. I mean, one of the reasons that I brought all three of you together is that I would love to overhaul the whole system because there ends up being this dichotomy and I, I see it all the time. I promote great books on Twitter and without fail, people write, you're one of those people that wants everyone to get $100,000 in debt so that they can work at Starbucks because they got a philosophy degree. There's no, there's no paradigm in which you could study the good and true and beautiful things and, and have a job and not have debt and be a balanced person. Um, it's, it's either elitist or it's costly or, and I think that's because the universities are so filled with bloat, right? Um, they're just, the way they even brand themselves, we're gonna offer a hundred majors. Look at all these choices you have and uh, you can do anything you want during the four years that you're here. And we promote extracurricular and we have student counseling and we have, you know, there's a lot of bloat to it. Um, so what you guys are doing, I'm really biased towards. John Martin, well, yeah. To the contrary, uh, the entire purpose of what we're doing, and we're hoping to have branch campuses uh, not in Los Angeles, but in California uh, and inside of Pennsylvania and inside of Dallas, actually, uh, inside of Texas within the next couple of years, minimally. Uh, that's who we're talking to right now. And the goal is to provide a fully accredited baccalaureate degree for less than or around $10,000 a year. Uh, so that the entire cost of, the, of a degree can be less than most private Christian colleges. And this can be done because not a single employee K through 16 at St. Constantine doesn't teach. We have no full-time administrators and that includes me. So I teach what would be considered a half-time load uh, inside the college uh, in my area of specialty, Plato in particular, uh, and we need to eliminate administrators. So I'm at war with the entire concept of administrators. I'm at war with presidential salaries. People need to get the 990 of the school that they're considering. So just type in X university 990, find out what the president makes, and then figure out how many professors I could hire for the president's salary. And the answer is often 10 or 11 professors, not counting the benefits packages. So, you know, this can be done. It is being done. It will be done. And a lot of it is by eliminating the bloat of administration, none of which uh, students see. Let me point out that most of the people we're talking about eliminating from a college or university experience aren't people that students ever interact with. They're that giant building that exists on every campus, multi-stories of people that no student ever runs into because it's the administrative assistant to the administrative assistant to the vice president for the associate provost for innovation uh, or the committee to eliminate committees. And so if this is all eliminated ex nihilo, we can change the world uh, and we can eliminate debt uh, I live in an area, we placed our school intentionally in an area where in a five mile radius, the average household income, household income is $22,000 a year. Oh and so we're providing college for everyone else and college for everyone else that's one-on-one -on -one Oxford style tutorials 
not the McCollege they invented after World War II when Reynoldses had the temerity in West Virginia to decide they wanted to go to college. Uh, so this can be done. And I really commend uh, these folks for doing this. Uh, the wonderful thing about this is we're a giant global uh, happening. Uh, and so we're talking to schools in England, uh, we're talking to places in Lebanon uh, about doing this. And one advantage uh, St. Constantine has is we're connected, we're pan-Orthodox. Uh, and so we're connected to the entire uh, Orthodox world uh, globally. And this can really revolutionize the world far from being snobbery. Uh, many of the uh, faculty that say, oh, we're worried about snobbery, we're worried about the cost of education, work in institutions that only upper middle class or wealthy people can afford, and uh, or they're saddled with $100,000 in debt uh, when they get out, or $40,000 in debt. Uh, we Our students have no debt uh, when they graduate, and I'm sure that that's true of these other two places. So the micro-college movement, there's room for many more people, and many more people should get in. It isn't, oh, we have to do the St. Constantine thing or this thing. Uh, I, everywhere I go, I encourage everyone to do this because the great research universities aren't going anywhere. Uh, at the graduate level, they provide a real value. Graduate education, uh, we could get into the politics of it, but in the sciences and other areas, it's not broken. Generally, it's pretty healthy. The U.S. is still the envy of the world. But this kind of um, factory farming university college education, where bluntly at a lot of the prestige schools, if they got rid of their undergraduate programs, they wouldn't even notice. They don't care. Uh, and you know everything, all the prestige is in the MA, PhD type programs. Uh, so let us do, uh, particularly in a K through 16 integration, let us do what really you know some of the bigger schools in Texas or other places don't want to do. Uh, they don't care at this point. Uh, and so I think there's a movement here and the people that you have, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, we represent. Uh, and it's not either or pick this or this is good or this is bad. This is an opportunity for many ideas uh, to flower. And I, my guess is almost all of them will work in their niche because again, I don't require 6,000 students to pay for my giant campus and climbing wall and my 15 vice presidents. Here's a rule of an unhealthy university. If there are more vice presidents than exist in any major in terms of faculty, that school is, I think, a fraud mm -hmm. because they are prioritizing vice presidential salaries, which are always almost always higher than faculty salaries over a thing that they claim is a major. And that's not a hard thing for parents to check. Look it up. How many vice presidents are on the university website? And then look at the major your student is going to and count the full-time, not part-time, full-time professors there. And if it's just horrible, the yeah. situation that we've come to. I, I believe that you're exactly right, that there, there are people who want this kind of education. They're not elitist. They, they want to really teach students. My problem is, you know, over the last several years, I haven't been able to see graduate programs. So one of the things you said was, you know, the graduate programs are fine at these research institutions. I haven't been able to find graduate programs that I would trust to send my students to who I think were doing real education. So 
my question that I want to direct at Stephen was, where are we going to get these professors who are going to be able to hand down the tradition when in the PhD level, they're not being trained in our tradition? You know, I love that question. Uh, I've been scavenging off of 20 years of teaching gifted and talented people yeah. like Matthew. And so I'll be curious to see how that goes. Yeah, because I, I think it's, yeah. I, I, yes, Stephen, please just elaborate on that for, for us. Well, I'd, just, I'd, say, I'd say a few things. The, the first is that uh, uh, I would, uh, in some respect, respectfully disagree with John Mark's analysis. I, I, I'm very doubtful about the health of the whole system. I'm not a catastrophist. We all know there's lots of great, great people teaching at, you know, at virtually any institution, uh, some you know, sincere, thoughtful administrators, you know, people trying to, but all that said, you know, there's a deep loss, a forgetfulness of mission, and even, you know, sometimes profound betrayal of mission that is systemic now. And Though I know there's lots of Chinese money, you know, eager to find a place at certain at a small number of elite institutions in this country, I actually don't believe we're the envy of the world. I think the notion that there is any university in the United States uh, that broadly speaking could be compared to say the University of Cambridge is, is absurd. I mean, I think it's a much better university by uh, by many different metrics. That's not to say there may not be programs that are comparable, but I think the 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 top research universities are are also facing some very big problems. And uh, at the level of, the, of humanistic education, the PhD is that certainly one of the places that happens. I mean, uh, uh, you've got <clears throat> in the humanities, a huge problem of presentism. That's to say, you can go into many institutes or departments and no one's working on anything, you know, before the, the 19th century or maybe the late 18th. And often it's all 20th century. So there's a real problem there. You've also got, of course, the, the kind of reproduction of fairly boring, you know, ideological standpoints that, that are being uh, perpetrated through uh, or just disseminated through, those, through, through the, the education of people in those, those doctoral programs and in the, uh, and therefore in them and with them as they go on throughout their careers. But I, I do want to say at the same time that, you know, there is, it is such, I mean, let me, this is maybe the wrong way to put this a little bit because I don't like resorting to economic uh, metaphors, but, but, but for, just to make the point very clearly, it is a buyer's market right now. I mean, the notion that there are no great people out there to hire with PhDs is just wrong. I mean, there are, there are, there are astoundingly talented people. And frankly, some of the best people are the ones not getting jobs because of some of the prejudices and biases within the hiring committees of, of the institutions uh, that, that have jobs to offer. And so, so, you know, one of my uh, fundamental predictions is that uh, new beginnings, new colleges, you know, uh, new high schools, new whatever, are going to find themselves with, you know, pro with possibly the best crop of people to hire in history, but certainly an enormously uh, large group of talented people who've been, uh, who, who are ready to, to really carry on the work of, of thinking, reading, writing, and of course, teaching. Uh, but that's not to say that we don't have very serious systemic problems. I, I've, I've started by saying that I think that we have you know, the very foundations are are seriously uh, undermined and that we, we you know, whether there'll be anything that resembles what has historically been known to be Western cultures, in my view, a very open question. I think it's already, we're in a position that's very discontinuous with, with when, when you have things like freedom of speech being uh, suggested to be kind of, you know, 
threats to minorities rather than the, the very mode of their their of securing their their rights against a majority. I mean, you have very serious undermining of fundamental, at least political, uh, uh, conditions of our of our of our life together. Uh, so I think there's big questions about transmission, but I'm not despairing about whether there are young people who can be hired into roles in the programs that we are offering. Yeah, let me say, uh, my problem is I can't list jobs. Uh, you know, at this point, I probably hire six or seven people with applicable degrees a year. I can't list jobs and, because I already just over the transom get more applications then I know what to do with from first-rate colleges and universities. So I agree with that uh, truth. I will say it's rare for me to be the least apocalyptic person on any podcast, uh, but I will defend American universities and people can take a look at global rankings of American universities. Uh, I still think particularly in the hard sciences and some of the professional degrees that the US is the envy of the world. Uh, I think if we're talking about the humanities and the micro colleges, often emphasize the humanities is the thing I like about Matthew's uh, work because it deals with entrepreneurial uh, activities as well. Uh, one idea we have with St. Constantine is each micro college we establish will take an emphasis that's uh, good for the area. And so, you know, a school in Houston might emphasize something uh, that's excellent for Houston. Uh, a school in California, you know, might find something that is good for what's on the ground there. Uh, but all, all, all kidding aside, I obviously generally agree that the American college and then humanities universities uh, have their troubles. Though I will say you can still be a traditionalist. And I had a mentor, Sheldon Van Auken, who told me in grad school, keep your mouth shut, keep your powder dry and give them both barrels as you go out the door. I suppose gun metaphors are bad uh, nowadays, but it was generally good advice. And I've generally found that I can hire people uh, from very good schools. I think Baylor is an excellent example of what has become, they have one of the best placement rates, for example, in philosophy in the world, uh, because traditional colleges who are looking for analytically trained philosophers who are you know, not captured by the trends of the moment are coming out of a place like Baylor, or coming out of a place like UD, University of Dallas. Uh, Notre Dame is still capable of uh, producing a world-class uh, PhD in some of these areas. Though again, even our, our Catholic universities are becoming infected by particular problems. So I, I don't wanna downgrade what you're saying. It's certainly the case that graduate education is fraught with peril. But I do think uh, micro colleges, we don't need, you know, thousands of employees. Uh, I need to find five or six good PhDs a year. And if I can find five or six good PhDs a year, I'm okay. And the US, and yes, you're right, Great Britain, Australia, uh, some excellent universities there. Though I'll tell you, don't try to open a K through 16 in Australia. They have made private education extraordinarily difficult. Uh, we had a group of people uh, interested in a St. Constantine program, forget the college part of it, just teaching children uh, outside of the state system or outside of the state curriculum is very difficult. Uh, so we often find that uh, traditionally Orthodox countries like Georgia, Russia, uh, Romania, uh, there are Lebanon, uh, we have greater opportunities to reach out. So I don't want to, I want to agree with you, the United States has some perilous problems.
Yeah, especially especially what I've seen in the the graduate world more and more. Those are the actually the three universities I would have listed. Um, is mm. Baylor, Notre Dame, University of Dallas, and then St. Andrews. If I could just very quickly say, I, I, of course, I think there's much that is sound in the hard sciences, especially, but this does come to something that both uh, 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 Matthew and John Mark have been speaking about that I think is really fundamental, the character of the life or the atmosphere, the character of college life, the character of your social life at a university is also very influential and formidable. And a lot of the problems let's say particularly ideologically that young people are coming out with it's not all coming from the classroom it's coming from residence life or 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 the 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 i mean residence life is above all a huge problem but 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 with the 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 larger atmosphere within a campus culture is is extremely influential and one can't uh is expect to go through uh, any uh, any of the major universities without uh, suffering some pretty collateral damage at that level yeah, well, actually, Matthew, do you want to speak to that? Because you have a different model for what residence life would look like at Hildegard, right? Do you mind talking about what you imagine life would look like for those who are going to apply and become students? Yeah, so our we, we don't have residential housing for students to live in. Um, and it's partly to keep costs down for students, but not entirely for that reason. Uh, Similar to our approach to the liberal arts, where we, instead of saying, here's a liberal arts degree, now graduate and go do something with it, we pull that go do something with it charge into the education and try to coach students in how to do that while they're students. Similarly, we ask students to live in the real world and live out their lives of virtue and in discipleship and formation with each other simply in apartments in the community. So we ask them to live in the community. Um, we did not invent this. I think that there are several microcolleges that do this in the country. And from what I can tell, they don't suffer at all for student, um, a sense of student community. Rather, what, what contributes to a healthy student community more than anything I've found is when all of the students are taking all of the same classes with the same professors, with their peers, uh, sharing the same learning goals and learning experiences. I think that's really irreplaceable um, in, in for, for what universities call the student experience or the learning experience, which I'm still yet to differentiate how, you know, what, what that means as compared to just education itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we don't, um, I, I, I agree with what Stephen's saying about the problems with uh, residential life and how that becomes a distraction. I think of it as kind of a, like a fictional Disneyland on college campuses that doesn't contribute much, especially at schools where almost all students live within commuting distance anyway. Uh, nonetheless, they pay a premium to live on campus for that experience. And I think you could do it better just by having students live in community with one another. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say, because we're in an urban environment and we want to be in an urban environment, we do offer some limited housing. What we don't offer is the very thing that's being described here. Uh, I went back and said, everyone teaches. So, you know, we don't have a giant res life entertainment program uh, that I, we live in Houston. If you can't be entertained in the city of Houston, uh, you have a real problem. Uh, and so we do have dorm space, you know, kind of subsidized housing available because some of our people come from backgrounds, uh, first generation college students that would find it hard to find housing in a neighborhood like ours that was safe and good and affordable. Uh, but then, you know, lots of our students, your junior or senior, go get an apartment. 
Uh, why in the world would you want to live inside of college housing? Uh, so I think, I, I think, again, there are going to be many models for this. But what you can see that smaller colleges are getting away from or smaller programs are giant bureaucracies where a lot of the rot that parents worry about really exists there. You know, your calculus teacher or your math teacher or your science teacher, it probably doesn't have time to do ideological indoctrination. Uh, they're dealing with subject area. That's even true in you know, a hard lit class often. Uh, but you know, there are hundreds of people in some places hired, and this is true at Christian colleges, uh, whole departments that are hired with an ideological spin, often to buy off the local paper so that the local paper doesn't come and call them bad names, or so that the local secular school will talk to them. Uh, if you get rid of those employees, you can lower tuition. And I think parents should know uh, we have their back and we have the back of their local pastor, now, as long as they're not crazy, right? But uh, if you're a normal Christian, if you're a normal Orthodox priest and you send your kid here or a Catholic priest or a Protestant minister, we've got your back and we don't have some entire division of our college that is stabbing you in the back and doing it for money. Yeah. Well, and both Hildegard College, I'm assuming, I actually don't know if Hildegard College is a Christian college. I'm just assuming because of the name, but it Ralph, is sectarian, right? Yeah, we're uh, we have no religious affiliation at all, though, of course, we welcome students of all religions. Yeah. So what has been um, what has been the driving force for parents or students who are interested in Ralston? Uh, well, uh, like uh, like Matthew, we're just uh, gearing up for a first degree program now. But I would say that uh, we, we likewise have an overwhelming number of inquiries. And uh, I think what's really at work is best described with the meaning the meaning crisis uh, and with <clears throat> with a pretty sharp awareness in the young that you know not every institution all the time but the system of education generally does not have their back that it is fraudulent that it is not in their interests it is not going to uh, enable them to ask the the fundamental questions it is not going to to probably in at least in the humanities even give them any valuable skills they may not learn to write or read with any seriousness or think with any kind of serious criticism despite the the constant refrain that it's all about critical thinking they're going to come out as as you know more or less robots for con the, the currently conventional ideas um and so you know smart young people are awake to this i mean they're not idiots i mean they they if you want to learn and you have genuine curiosity for 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 serious thought you know you're going to be able to judge that this institution uh, is 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 not is is not going to offer it to you. So, what we have found is that uh, by and large, <clears throat> for our potential students, they're 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 people who really want to encounter ideas in a in a hardcore way. They want to think. They want to be challenged. They want a radical freedom to lead, go where the argument leads, uh, and and to be to show themselves worthy of, of that of that kind of in, intellectual uh, intellectual work and quest. Uh, at, at at a larger level, with the, you know the 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 large numbers of people that we have the privilege of speaking to in our podcast and through our live events and and so on, we find that it's it's generally I would characterize it as as continuous with that. It's people who just trying to 
ask real questions, the kind of questions that human beings have evolved to think are fundamental to their own, to their own realization. You know, what is the meaning of life and so on and so forth? How do I deal with suffering? You know, what is the nature of truth? What is beauty? How can I live with, with, with some sense of, of abiding uh, meaning and substance and depth? And uh, you know, the truth is people are finding themselves without the means to do that and they're turning wonderfully that th though this is uh, to those who are trying to offer something meaningful in that space. Yeah, absolutely. I am so I'm so tired of um, the lack of substance at branding at these universities where just they're going to make today's leaders. And I mean, apparently following is no longer a valuable skill by anybody, but we are all going to be mass leaders and we have no idea why your math major or why your engineering major is going to prepare you to be a leader but that that's the major selling point is that you can come here and become a leader right the, the goal is you're going to read well you're going to write well you're going to think well you're going to be numerate you'll understand the scientific methods and you're not going to misunderstand the cultural moment and so if you can do that that's a good undergraduate education and if you can do that without debt in a context that supports the values of the parents, the pastors, the other people that send their kids to college, hopefully, uh, then that's a good thing. And then kids do what they want. They turn out as they will. Uh, I should say, St. Constantine, we don't have a statement of faith. Anybody can come. Uh, we'll accept any students. And so we accept students from all over Houston. We're serving the entire community. Most of our students aren't Orthodox. Uh, we have no idea what they're doing on a Sunday morning. Uh, we have no idea what the, you know, their particular beliefs are. Because when you're sitting with a student like I was last week in an intensive Republic seminar that lasted all weekend, and you're talking about the nature of what it is to be a man and a woman, I know this down the street at the University of Houston, this is a discussion and people were giving opinions of all kinds, all kinds, left, right, up, down, that would have gotten that class shut down uh, at the University of Houston. So uh, we have the opportunity for our students to say whatever they want uh, and then be guided uh, by this great literature, by these great ideas that have formed not just leaders, but you're right, the followers and good citizens for this republic. I don't know how you can have a republic without informed voters. Uh, and uh, the basis of a liberal arts education used to be not to get a job. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't go to Harvard because otherwise he'd never have a job. Uh, you went to become a gentleman or a lady uh, ultimately. And so can we produce a civilized leadership of ladies and gentlemen who are fit to be voter leaders uh, or voter followers in this republic? And I think the answer is yes, we don't have to reinvent anything. Uh, what if the Reynoldses, uh, we came to the United States 400 years ago and nobody even gave us high school, let alone college in places like Western Virginia. And then when they finally let us go to college after World War II, they gave us giant state universities, which were kind of colleges. Well, what if the Oxford and Cambridge one-on-one -on -one tutorial style were given to the Reynoldses and not just the Rockefellers and the Roosevelts? What if finally we were able to get leadership class and uh, you know, like uh, upper middle class education for people that are the rock, are the basis for the Republic. And I think a lot of these micro colleges are gonna be able to do that. And it's really exciting. 
there's hope. This is a hopeful thing. That's great. Well, we we have about five minutes left. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it to Matthew on this because I I love getting to hear about what kind of students you're wanting to turn out because you're right. We need we need citizens. We need followers. We need leaders. We need those who care about these good and true and beautiful things, right? To pass on to the next generation, as Stephen said. So Matthew, what what's your hope that Hildegard is going to have? What kind of students come out from it? We we are purposely. Um... Well, I should say this, we, we started discussing Hildegard College as the possibility of founding a traditional classical college. And these are classical schools around the country that are doing great. My kids go to a classical K through 12 and are learning Latin and are better at it than I am now. And I really admire it. Mm -hmm. But we have a mission at Hildegard for all students. And we want to be um, not just accessible, but we want to capture students' imaginations wherever they are. I don't mean that in a trite way. It can sound cute, that's not what I mean. Uh, one of my favorite kind of luminary authors for thinking about education is Cardinal John Henry Newman, who says that, uh, if I can get it right, philosophy, however enlightened, however profound, uh, gives no command over the passions. So no matter how profound or enlightened philosophy is, it can't command the passions and he ends this section by saying a liberal education does not make a Christian. And you can substitute if you want a good citizen, a good voter, um, a virtuous person, a good father or mother or spouse or community member. Mm -hmm. A liberal education doesn't make a Christian or a virtuous person because liberal education alone, by which I mean the study of logic and grammar and the technical things of learning, it can't move you. It can show you what wisdom is, but it can't move you to love wisdom or to desire it. And I think that's the place of, of love and passion in a um, truly transformative liberal arts curricular program that includes stories and includes the arts. This is something um, I originally learned when I was in college learning under John Mark Reynolds in the Tory program. Um, there are two, correct me if I'm wrong, John Mark, there are two kinds of Platonists. One that thinks Socrates hates poetry and others that thinks that Socrates thinks that poetry is maybe the only thing that can get you out of the cave. Hey, uh, the Republic is a great work of poetry and art. So either Plato was so self-referentially incoherent, he didn't realize what he was doing, or yes, I agree with you. <laughs> that's, and that's the, um, that's the kind of student we want, mm -hmm. a student who wants to make a difference in the world, but needs to figure out how and needs to be formed into the kind of person that actually will, that will make that decision. And so that's the kind of student that we want to graduate. That's fantastic. I Thank you guys so much for, for sharing your vision of your schools, for doing this good work, because I know it is a very thankless job that you are, are set out to do. Uh, and it's one of those things that you're probably not gonna see the fruit of and the fruit's gonna be born after you're long gone. Uh, and and yet I thank you for doing it because it gives me hope. I'm not an apocalyptic thinker. I'm not cynical about the state of things, but there's not a lot of hope in the state of things in the academy. And you guys are the glimpses of it. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for having us. Uh, we named ourselves St. Constantine because in this sign conquer, we're not going to hide in a cave, eating stored food, waiting for the Antichrist to drag us out. We'll be sitting in the center of cities, reading the Republic and uh, trusting that God will save us, uh, full of goodness, truth, and making beauty wherever we can.
That's fantastic. Thanks for having us, Jessica. Yeah, yeah thank keep you up the Jessica, good work. Stephen, John Mark, it was a pleasure talking. It's always Likewise. a pleasure.